If you've been with us for a while in this series of uh, 1 Peter, no doubt you are familiar with the fact that, uh, that uh, Peter addresses the perils of the day that his readers were facing, and that was the onslaught of false teachers and their false teaching. First uh, Peter begins, or I'm sorry, Second Peter begins this uh, short epistle with some words of encouragement as far as the kinds of characteristics that, uh, that the believer should be walking in, working toward. We see that in the early verses of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, uh, we see that he gets into a rather scathing description of the false teachers. Pastor Bill spent three uh, Sundays covering uh, the extent of their corrupt living, their immoral lifestyle, and their insatiable greed. They, they were the characteristics of the false teachers. And so now, uh, Peter is beginning to uh, readdress his readers, and we see a change as we get into chapter 3 in the conclusion of this short epistle. We see a change in his tone, and we see a change in his strategy. We see a change in his tone because he is leaving now that uh, pointed description of that which characterized the false teachers, and now we see the tender underbelly of Peter showing concern and, and interest in the well-being of his readers. And so he encourages them to retreat back to those things that he previously taught them and to think with a clear mind four times in chapter in chapter 3, Peter refers to his readers as beloved, or as the NIV translates it, as dear friends. And so we see that loving concern of Peter demonstrated toward his readers in wanting them to think clearly, diagnosing the, the theories and the presuppositions of the false teachers and instead to retreat back to that which he had previously taught them. Now, that was the change of his tune, but we also, we also see a change in his strategy. So, how Peter is going to conclude this short epistle, he is going to address the arguments of the false teachers, and we'll find three of them. And this is a bit of a roadmap as to where we're headed this morning. Peter's going to address the three arguments of the false teachers, and then he's going to present counter-arguments that clearly reveal their flawed thinking. So, with that in mind, let's go to 2 Peter, beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1. This is now... Peter writes, the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, in both of them I am stirring up your sincere minds by way of reminder. Okay, Peter often uh, used that 
uh, teaching tool of remembering, reminding, remembering, uh, reassuring, reviewing. And much of preaching, it's been said, is, is sharing with God's people what they already know but aren't necessarily doing. We saw in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, for example, where uh, Peter indicates that as long as I am in this fleshly body, that is to say, as long as I am alive, it is my job, it is my responsibility as an apostle, as one sent to stir you up by way of reminder. And so Peter addresses his readers, and he said, here I am again, reminding you of that which we went over. And he indicates that he would like to renew what he calls their sincere minds. The word sincere uh, in the original language means to, to hold something up against the light and to expect it carefully so that uh, its integrity can be confirmed. Their sincere minds, their pure minds, their wholesome minds. So Peter reminds them to think back of that which we have gone over previously in terms of my teaching and to think clearly, not with adulterated minds, not with unwholesome minds of the false teachers, but to think clearly. So he's challenging them, reminding them of those things which they have gone over and to be reminded and to think wholesomely concerning these things. Now, in verse 2, Peter reminds them what is the basis of wholesome thinking. That you should, he says, remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So, what is the basis of pure thinking? What is the basis of wholesome thinking? Peter says it's biblically thinking. It's thinking biblically. It's thinking the Word of God. And so Peter reminds them that if they're going to have a pure mind, they need to reflect in terms of what saith the Word of God. Now, this is... Um, Certainly not the first time that Peter reminds them of the importance of the Word of God in terms of directing their thinking. Uh, if you remember back in uh, chapter 1 and verse uh, 19, uh, Peter reminded them that as the prophetic word is presented to you, that you would do well to shine following it, being examples of followers of the word of God, shining as lights in this dark world. So then when we get to verse 3 of this chapter, Peter begins to address the, the arguments of the false teachers. And uh, let's uh, begin to focus now on these three arguments. Argument number one, we see in verse three, it's, we'll call it the argument of ridicule or the argument of mocking. Let's look at verse three. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Okay, so Peter says, 
What did the predictions of the holy prophets say? Verse 2. What was pronounced by the Lord Jesus Christ, the commandments of the Lord presented to you by his apostles? Verse 2. Okay, what was the biblical thinking concerning these false teachers? It was predicted long ago that they would come in these last days. And for Peter, the last days were those days that were marked by the death of Christ and the second return of Christ. That period in Peter's thinking, we could see this in Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, when on Pentecost, people were visiting Jerusalem and hearing the gospel in their own dialect, in their own language, and some were mocking, saying, what is going on here? These people hit the taverns a little bit early in the morning. And Peter said, no, that's not the case at all, but this is what the prophet Joel spoke of, that these things will take place in the last days. So Peter is saying that mockers will come in these last days, and they mock just about anything you could think of. They mock us for trying to live godly and holy lives. They mock us if we take a pro-life stance. They mock us in terms of believing childish Sunday school stories. They mock us if we are able to relate the Word of God to any discussion or any issue of the day. They mock us, and we shouldn't be surprised at that, Peter says. So don't be discouraged. Don't be overly concerned. Don't be embarrassed. Realize that mockers will come with their mocking. And it doesn't uh, take much time, if you're listening to the news, to hear story after story of students who present a, a worldview that is reflected from the Word of God to be criticized by their professors or by their teachers. I just read an account this week where a teacher in Florida was suspended because she ostracized a Bible-believing Christian in her class for being pro-life. And as a result of her criticizing this student after a thorough investigation, the teacher has been temporarily suspended with pay. Really rough, right? You get to stay home and collect your check. That's quite a punishment. Or if you've watched the latest Hollywood presentation of what a Bible-believing Christian is, uh, more times than not, if you watch Hollywood's rendition, they will present Christians as um, hate-filled and education-emptied individuals. Uh, that will not surprise us because we see it often. And Peter says the argument by mocking or ridicule, that's, that's one of the arguments of the false teachers, to corner us intellectually in our minds to say, yeah, I don't want to be mocked. I don't want to be 
uh, pigeonholed as being one of these fundamentalists. And so Peter reminds them, number one, of their argument, the argument of ridicule. Then he says at the end of verse 3, their argument from immorality, their argument from immorality. In verse 3, again, knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing. And then he says, following their own sinful lusts. Now, Pastor Bill covered this most extensively in chapter 2, uh, pointing out that the sensuality and passion, they were like unreasoning animals. They reveled in the daytime. Their sensual passions characterized these false teachers so we won't spend a whole lot of time reviewing this, but uh, let me just uh, share with you a quote that I came upon this week. Uh, I'm not uh, one who is uh, normally reading um, the works of Aldous Huxley, but this week I came across a quote that I, I thought was rather interesting. Uh, Huxley was a 20th century philosopher and avowed atheist, um, this is what uh, Huxley had to say in his book called Ends and Means. And this uh, sort of, I think, honestly captures the mindset of the false teachers and what was motivating them. Huxley writes, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently, assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. He continues, My contemporaries and I objected to a certain system of morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. So there you have it. And at least you could say for Huxley that he was honest. Peter says the argument from immorality basically is this. God is not going to judge. Jesus is not going to return. And therefore, we can live however we want. You know, it's sort of like when the teacher tells the class, that I have to leave early for the day. There's 10 minutes left in the school day. I want you to stay in your seats like ladies and gentlemen. I'd like you to mind yourselves for the final 10 minutes when the bell rings, you could be dismissed, and the teacher takes his or her briefcase with them and leaves the room. Now, I don't know how it was when you went to school, but where I went to school, that was an invitation for mayhem. But if the teacher said, I am going to step out of the classroom for a moment and I will return, that sort of uh, moderated the extent of your foolishness. Not because you were necessarily less foolish, but you didn't want to be caught and pay the consequences. See, that was the thinking of the false prophets or the false teachers. There's not going to be any report card that we need to be concerned about. There's nothing that should prompt us 
to live otherwise than the way Huxley described his own lifestyle, to dispel the notion of any kind of morality because as such it will affect my sexual freedom. Now there was a third uh, argument of these false teachers. Uh, we see this in verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from creation. Let's call this the argument of uniformity. The argument of uniformity. Nothing's going to change. From creation, nothing has changed, they argued. Okay? In the beginning, as it was and ever shall be, that was the thinking of the false teachers. And Peter really goes to town on this one. I mean, think about it. Think of the foolishness of arguing for uniformity. That is to say, nothing's going to change. In fact, they say that from creation, from the time of the fathers, referring probably to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, nothing has changed. Nothing will change. So live life to the fullest. Have at it. There is no consequence. Where is His coming? Nothing is going to change. Where is He? If you think about the really the stupidity of that argument, you could use the argument of uniformity uh, in the most ridiculous way. For example, I could say, I've never died before. Therefore, I'm not going to die. I've never had this health issue before. Therefore, I don't need to worry about ever having it in the future. So now, Peter begins to address the arguments of the false teachers, and he presents their flawed thinking. Let's look at uh, first the argument from Scripture. We touched on this just uh, a moment ago, but uh, let's, let's go back and, and review it. Peter indicates that if we're going to think wholesomely, if we're going to think purely, if we're going to think sincerely, then Peter would say, we must think biblically. Let's, uh, let's read verses 5 through 7. For they, or, or uh, let's uh, go back to uh, verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, Peter, uh, in chapter 1, reminded them, speaking again of the Word of God, in which he says, you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Do you see what Peter refers to the world the world of mockers and scoffers, the world of godlessness. He calls it a dark place. And as we walk in newness of life, being followers of the Lord Jesus, Peter refers to us as lights in a dark place. 
The Apostle Paul uses the exact same analogy in Philippians chapter 2 when he says that we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Brothers and sisters, if we don't walk biblically, it won't take long for the world to pour us into its mold. And no matter what Bible writer uh, you read, you read strong pronouncements along these lines. This is what John spoke of in his first epistle when he said, do not love the world or the things of the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, when he speaks of the world, he is not speaking of the, the people in the world. Jesus clearly spoke to his disciples that they will know that we belong to him by the love that we have for one another and for others and the way we serve others. But John is speaking about the, the world system that uh, is influenced by the devil and his minions. Paul said the same thing in Romans chapter 12 when he said, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be poured into the world's mold, Paul says but instead by the Spirit of God that takes up residence in the child of God to be transformed, that is to say, not conformed, an outward conformity, but a transformation that takes place from the inside out. James, the brother of the Lord Jesus in chapter 1, when he was encouraging his readers not just to be merely hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word, then in verse 27 reminds them not to be stained by the world. If we don't think biblically, brothers and sisters, we run the risk of being poured into the world's mold. And I say that for us as individuals. I say that for us as a church family. I'm so thankful that when we have our meeting with the elders, if there's an issue or a concern that rises, that one of the elders will say, okay, what does the Word of God have to say to direct us, to guide us, to lead us? Is there a biblical principle that we can glean from the Word of God that may give us direction? Rather than appealing to our own wisdom, the Word of God is that which is the yardstick by which all things should be measured. And how tragic it is today, brothers and sisters, that as we worship this morning, there are denominational heads in major denominations in this country that are advising their individual church members to be voting on whether, and here's the, here's the real question. Now, they won't pose it this way. They will kind of pad it with cotton candy and uh, uh, cotton balls to make things sound a little more palatable. But basically the question is, do you want to be conformed to the world's image or would you like 
your church to be transformed by the renewing of your mind? Would you like to be directed by the Word of God, or would you prefer to be more culturally relevant? And what a challenge for us as a church family. We are to be a prophetic voice as we swim upstream in a downstream world. And now there are people that say, no, we don't want that. We want to blend in. We want to be conformed to the world. And so denominations now need to vote how they want to respond. But may I say that this is just not a denominational problem, but this is a challenge for each of us individually. I know for me, I find myself so easily tempted to want to walk with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. Do you ever, do you ever struggle with that? Sometimes the world has a lot to offer and we, we want to you know, go for some of that uh, gusto, so to speak. It's, the mindset is, how close to the edge can I get without falling off? You know, how much can I engage in the world's pleasure without um, becoming stained? When, in fact, the very opposite should be our perspective. Yeah, I know that edge is over there, and, and I think I could get pretty close to it without falling over because I have some sense of balance. But you know what? I'm not even going to test it. I'm going to stay as far away from the edge as possible. And how do we do that, brothers and sisters? We do that by thinking biblically. So there is the argument from Scripture. Secondly, there is the argument from history. Let's, uh, let's read verses 5 through 7. This is Peter's second argument to counter the arguments of the false teachers. Notice what he says here. For they deliberately overlook this fact, little sarcasm there, by the way, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of the uh, by means of these, the world then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Okay, what is Peter saying there? Okay, those that, that say nothing's going to change, there's not going to be the return of Christ, there's not going to be a final report card to pay, there's not going to be judgment, so live the way you want. Nothing has changed from the beginning. Peter says um, they deliberately forgot something. They forgot something that the ancient Egyptians didn't forget. It's in their records. It's not something the ancient Babylonians forgot. It's in their records. It's not something the, the Assyrians forgot. It's in their records. This world destruction, Peter says, uh, by the way, it's, it was called the flood. They kind of sort of forgot all about that. And what's Peter's point here? The point is that 
God, by his word, through water and in water, and if you go back, by the way, and read Genesis chapter 1, verses 2, and especially verses 6 through 9 again, you'll have a better understanding of what Peter had in mind when he said that the world was created by water and through water. But ultimately, the medium was by the Word of God, there was creation. By the same Word of God, that which God used to create the world, namely some form of H2O, God's going to use that same form of water to destroy the world. And so Peter's argument is this. Things haven't always been the same since the beginning of creation. The fact is that God destroyed the world once through water. So if he did it once, he could do it again. But in verse 7, Peter says, but God is faithful to his word, for he promised never to deluge the earth again with water, and now, the second time, he will judge the earth and destroy it through fire. Well, that's a consolation, right? But not to worry. Keep reading on, and we will see that there will be a new earth and a new heaven that will be characterized by a reign of righteousness. And what a glorious day that will be for the people of God. You see, the problem is the flood. The problem is water. Water just punctured their idea of uniformity. And as the great theologian, my cousin Vinny, once described it, their argument doesn't hold water. My cousin Vinny. Come on, give me, give me a little love. I'm going toward the edge. <laughs> their argument didn't hold water because water destroyed the earth, and yet there will be a future where God will destroy the earth this time by fire. And what is really interesting, and I never saw this before, in all my 40-plus years of life, in chapter 2, Peter gives, makes this very interesting statement. He refers to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and says, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, now note, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. He points out that the destruction of, of fireballs from heaven that destroyed those two wicked cities was, in fact, a, a preview of what God will do upon another future day to all ungodliness. So there's a third and final argument that Peter addresses to counteract the flawed presentation of the false teachers. It's the argument against God's delay. What's the holdup? The false teachers argued. Where is he? 
We told you nothing was going to happen because it hasn't happened yet. Let's read these few verses as we make our closing points. But do not overlook this one fact. Beloved, there again, calling them beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? The argument against God's delay. Now, verse 8 has been misunderstood by um, many of God's people. A thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. So what many of God's people have done when they come to that verse, they they think that they have unlocked the formula for understanding time in God's framework. And that's not the case at all. I remind you, it doesn't say a thousand years is a day, and a day is like a, a thousand years. It says a thousand years is like a day, or a thousand years is as a day. Let me paraphrase what Peter is saying there. God doesn't operate on our clock. God doesn't operate on our calendar. For us, a lot of time has passed, but God is right on schedule. We cannot accuse him of being late in fulfilling his promises. In fact, time is something that God created. There is no past, present, or future in God's timetable. Are you ready for this? God is in the eternal present. That's a mind-bender, isn't it? That'll keep you up at night. God is in the eternal present. So God's not late. But in fact, Peter said there's a reason for what appears to be the delay. And that delay, the, the reason for that delay is the graciousness of God. But he is patient toward you so that all that have been called will not perish but come to repentance. Think about it. If God came yesterday, those that come to Christ tomorrow would have spent an eternal separation from God. And sometimes we read the news and we listen to the news and we, we say, how much more can God tolerate of this craziness and this unrighteousness. Now, the false teachers saw that as a vice. Peter sees it as a virtue. They misunderstood the character of God. Where is he? Peter said he's there, and he's patiently 
long-sufferingly waiting for many to come to saving faith. And then once we get to verse 10, everything changes. There will be a day when the waiting is over, when the long-suffering ceases, and the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It will come suddenly. It will come unexpectedly. And the heavens will pass away, and the heavenly bodies will be dissolved. But be of good courage, because verse 13 that we'll cover next week speaks of a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will reign. Now, let me conclude by looking at verse 11, and we'll just make one brief comment. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That will be the focus of next week's message, because Peter will seek then to answer that question by giving us four imperatives, four commands that we should follow that will help us as to what kind of people we should be in light of Christ's certain return. And what's interesting here is when the Bible speaks of last things, it never, the focus never seems to be in the realm of speculation, but rather motivation. When the Bible speaks of last things, you notice that Peter doesn't say here, in light of this, you better figure out the time frame of all this. But rather, he says, you better figure out the kind of person you ought to be. And so we trust that uh, you'll come back next week and hear the conclusion of uh, this message and this chapter as Peter wraps it up and encourages us uh, on how we can live godly lives in a godless world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you today with thanksgiving that your grace and patience toward us was made evident and that you're still gracious and patient with us. Lord, we're not always living the lives that we should live. Uh, we still stumble and we still fall, but by the power of the Spirit of God living within us, Lord, we... Uh, we pray that we might be growing day by day more into the image of Jesus, who was himself without spot or blemish. If there's anyone here today, Lord, who is facing an uncertain future because of their uncertainty of where they stand with the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that today would be a day where they would open up their hearts and receive the fullness of forgiveness that he offers by faith. That they could be turned into a new creation, Father, not because of who they are, but because of whose they are. So we commit this time of study of your word to you, and we pray that we might be so motivated to live lives pleasing to you, uh, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing 
in the knowledge of God. And from our hearts, we would live lives pleasing to you. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.